Please turn your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. Today we are beginning a series, a six-week series that we are calling Life Together. You will see this in all the sermons that we do. We'll be in this book for six weeks. Today we're going to start with the first chapter, the first verse, going through verse 9. Oops. A few months ago, a friend and I were talking about our jobs. She also is in ministry, and we were discussing how much of leadership is the art of the awkward conversation. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. No matter where we are in life, there are times we have to take the lead and initiate a tricky or delicate conversation. There are confrontations where something needs to be named and called out before it's healed. There are clarifying moments where we must ask questions we don't want to hear the answer to. There are difficult circumstances beyond anyone's control where we have to talk about painful decisions or move forward where no one wants to talk about or think about the future. As my friend and I were discussing this, we realized again how much courage it takes to navigate through life, how much prayer and wisdom it takes. To be sure, we can avoid awkward conversations. We can pretend nothing's wrong. There's no elephant in the room. We can allow someone to keep doing the unhealthy thing or the wrong thing. But when something goes awry or people get hurt or real change doesn't occur, then we are complicit. To ignore something that needs to be discussed usually leads to more pain and more heartache down the road. And if we choose to have the conversation, isn't how we have the conversation just as important as having it? We can be bombastic and angry, but then the conversation becomes just as much about our bad behavior as the issue at hand. We lose the right to speak when we belittle and when we shame in our correction. Ah, life is complicated and messy. The Apostle Paul understood this very well. He was not perfect, but he was not afraid. This was perhaps because of how he came to know Christ when an awkward conversation occurred on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Is a hard thing to talk about. See, God does not shrink away from initiating truth with humanity. Paul knew this. And so the rest of his life was spent talking about real things every day, wherever he went. I bring this up because for the next six weeks, we're going to see how Paul's letter to the church at Corinth is a difficult conversation he needs to have with them. There are huge issues that have to be resolved, so he's going to delve in. Because we're going to be in this letter for multiple Sundays, I want us to be reminded in a deeper way of the history of the place and what was happening at the church and Paul's involvement. Corinth was a city located in Greece on a narrow isthmus, I love that word, isthmus, which connected the two parts of that country. Surrounded by the Aegean Sea to the east and the Ionian Sea to the west, it was an important place that many people passed through due to necessity and also because it was a great cultural hub. 
Boats would bring goods and have them carried across the four-mile isthmus to avoid navigating around Cape Mala, which was the most dangerous cape in the Mediterranean. Corinth had been leveled by the Romans in 146 BC and then built up again 100 years later when Julius Caesar founded a colony and gave land grants to the veterans of Roman wars who wanted to settle there. It grew quickly and it became one of the most important cities in the empire after Rome and Alexandria. It was a prosperous place. It was diverse in population, and its very name, Corinthian, became to be synonymous with debauchery, wealth, luxury, and the baseness of humanity. One commentator said Corinth was New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all rolled into one in the ancient world. It also had significant religious overtones with many pagan and cultic temples. There was a strong Jewish presence here as well, a synagogue that Paul would be kicked out of, maybe because he converted the temple leader. (laughs) Paul first visited Corinth during his second missionary journey around AD 50. He was the first Christian missionary recorded to minister there. And in a dream, the Lord asked him to stay there for a while. He ended up being there 18 months. He ministered alongside Priscilla and Aquila, as well as Silas and Timothy. And he was a tent maker when he was there by trade. We don't know much about how his ministry went there, but we know he had a great affection for the people. The church that grew was pretty big for the time, and it led to much correspondence after he left. This is actually the second letter he sends to this group. The first one was lost, and we only know about it because Paul mentions it in his book. We know that it was something about uh, not associating with immoral people. Um, So he wrote this letter because he heard that there were problems when people came to visit him, and also because the church wrote him a letter. And in that letter, there were troubling things that hit Paul's radar, and he knew that he had to bring correction. So let me give you a little idea about what the church was like. It was a place full of divisions. It was a place where there were wealthy and powerful leaders who promoted themselves and competed with one another for loyal followers. There's a lot of immoral behavior happening under the guise of freedom in Christ. People are suing one another in the Roman court. Some are so fed up with all of the immorality that they are promoting complete sexual abstinence for believers. They are fighting over the role of men and women in the church. They love spiritual gifts, but they elevate ones that they consider to be more important. Some of them don't even believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. This is the church to whom Paul is writing. It's not a big theological tome, but rather it's a practical issue-driven letter about how they should be living in relationship to one another, to God, and the culture around them. Well, this is an extreme example of a church in crisis. There are many issues that the modern church has in common, and we'll be discussing these in the weeks to come. So what we see here in the opening is how Paul opens his letter by reminding them who they are and what they have been given. This is more than him just offering a positive antidote before the criticism comes. 
Paul is framing the letter in a way that focuses in on God's character and actions. Yes, there are problems. Yes, we're going to talk about them. But first, there'll be an affirmation of who they are in Christ and what they have been given in order to live out the Christian faith. That should always be the basis of any change that we make. Whenever we have to have an awkward conversation, be it personal or corporate, who we are in Christ. And one of the ways we know that Paul is doing that is that Jesus' name is mentioned nine times in nine verses. Now you're going to see that. We emphasize what is most important in any conversation. Here, Paul is emphasizing the overarching person and work of Christ. So let us read together. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, thank you for your word. May we have humble hearts, God, as we hear what you have to say. Amen. Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians by defining what the church is and by telling them how they have been touched by God's grace. Those are the two ideas I want to highlight briefly for you this morning. In this opening, there are things that are in every letter that Paul writes. There's a greeting. There's an identification of who he is. There is an acknowledgement of his brother, Sosthenes, who we think is maybe with him or helping write the letter. But the two ideas I want to focus in on today are how Paul defines the church and how God's grace has helped them. Remember, this is Paul's beginning to an awkward conversation to a church in trouble. So we have to think that he thought about his words and they have meaning beyond what is customary for a regular letter. For our first point, we're going to focus on verse 2 where Paul starts his letter. It is to the church of God in Corinth. That is who he directs his letter to. Not the Corinthian church, but to the part of God's family that is located in the city of Corinth. There are three ways that Paul talks about the church. Good reminders of who we are. First, he said the church is made up of those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Another word that might be used is consecrated. The church are people who are set apart as sacred because of what the Lord Jesus has done. He has met us in our brokenness. He has been broken in his body so that we might be forgiven and healed. 
By his wounds, we are made healed. This happens when we believe in him. Sanctified is a word we don't use much anymore. Would you describe yourself as sanctified, cleansed, consecrated? The church is meant to be people who are forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. More language we don't always use very much. But there's one way to be forgiven, and that is through the brutal death of Christ. If the church forgets that, we are lost. Paul then says that we are called to be saints. Here he is giving a parallel to himself. He says, I myself am called to be an apostle. One who has experienced firsthand the resurrected Lord. Who was sent out then in his authority to do the work. Paul has been specifically told to live out God's work. But Paul is reminding the church that they also are called. Called to be saints. We also shy away from this kind of language. Saints just means we're holy. We're justified by God in thought and deed. Sometimes we hear criticism that the church just thinks it's better than everyone else. That the church has committed awful atrocities throughout history. That is true. Sometimes, though, that makes us distance ourselves because we don't want to be seen as hypocritical or too zealous or part of the church where we might not agree with everyone. But then we give up our birthright and our mandate from the Lord. How do you live out the call that God has placed on your life to be holy, to be a saint in the church? What does that look like? Last week, Julia reminded us it looks like radical servanthood. But it also looks like living so that the Spirit of God has free reign in our lives. That we give Him glory and not ourselves. That we live to please Him above all else. Sometimes I think the world thinks this is ridiculous. And squirms. When we live lives that are holy and pleasing to the Lord. When God is apparent in us. They're astounded when we seek forgiveness from them. When we try to see viewpoints that are different than our own. When we try to understand people who are hurting or that we disagree with. Paul was talking to people who were swayed by huge pagan influences all around them. And he's telling them, I need you to remember who you are so that you will influence your culture and your community, not the other way around. Paul also reminds the church that they are united together with all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. This means people all over the world, our Coptic brothers and sisters in Egypt, our Anglican friends in Africa, our Catholic family down the street. It means the saints who have gone before us and those who have yet to be saved. There's a bigger picture going on and Paul wants them to know that. We are a massive group connected by Christ. Those who call on his name. We are in every nation on the planet. Paul is reminding this group there is more than just their little place of worship. So this is the church. Saved by Jesus to belong fully to God, holy in thought and behavior, spread throughout time and encircling the globe to serve God and his purposes. 
Paul is reminding this group exactly who they are, which might seem ironic since they are not being this right now. But what a better idea to tell them exactly what the church is supposed to need. Because soon he's going to have to dismantle their arrogance and bring unity to their divisions. He needs them to focus in on what God longs the church to be. And he is reminding them what life together looks like. These are important words for us to think about as well. To see if this resonates with our thinking. It's good to remember the church today is a fellowship of sinners redeemed by Jesus to be his people wherever we go. So Paul has told them who they are, and now he tells them what they've been given. In verse 3, Paul gives them a standard greeting of grace and peace. We have done that today. We have passed the peace of Christ, a communal way of extending God's supernatural presence. Paul goes on to offer thanks to God for the grace that has been given in Jesus. We know that grace is unmerited favor when we don't deserve it. But grace is so much more, so much bigger than just being forgiven from our sin. Here Paul gives four ways that God's grace has been lavishly given to the Corinthians. Paul thanks God for the grace that has enriched them in speech and knowledge. Paul thanks God for the grace that has strengthened the testimony of Christ among them. Paul thanks God for the grace that has been given them in spiritual gifts. He says you are lacking in nothing. Paul gives God thanks for the grace that will strengthen them in the end when they meet Jesus face to face. These are deep ideas. This is a beautiful truth that Paul is giving them. It is so positive. And in everything, God is given the glory. The church is not to be patted on the back for the good things that they do or are. If the church is loving or strong in service or reaching out to their neighbors or being a safe place or a place where justice is upheld, that is the Lord in them. This church has been called a gem in our community. And I am grateful and I am proud of our work. And I tell everyone, oh, these people are so loving. They're so kind. But this is not our own doing. This is the grace of God that has been poured out on us. Anytime we are praised or complimented with the same breath that we receive the affirmation, we give glory to God. Because in him we live and move and have our being. The Corinthian church thought very highly of themselves. And they got off track. While Paul seems to be complimenting them, he is actually zeroing in on God's strength among them. For his enriching and the gifts that they praise so highly. For any testimony that Christ has among them. Whatever good can be found in the church is due to the Lord. Through his goodness, he has made us part of his body, so we give him all the praise. Before we close, I was also struck by verse 8. It says, He will strengthen you to the end, so you might be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you ever think about meeting our Lord face to face? We often think about how we will die 
or the perfection of heaven. We might think about the loved ones that we're going to be reunited with. But Paul tells us that part of God's grace is getting us ready to meet the Lord when we will be blameless in his sight because his sacrifice has made us clean. I was thinking about how many touching stories there are about people who meet for the first time after one of them was instrumental in saving the other's life. A police officer saves a baby in a dumpster. A person on a hotline talks someone out of harming themselves. Someone who donated an organ meets a recipient who would otherwise have died. These emotions are real when the reunion happens, when these people see one another face to face, because there's profound gratefulness for the saving action on part of the person who helped, an acknowledgement that someone went above and beyond what was expected. This is the reunion that will be when we meet Jesus face to face. As we gather in heaven from the far corners of the world, people of every every tribe and nation and language, we will look in his eyes for the first time and be able to say thank you, to weep with joy for the life that he gave us and saved us from generously when he didn't have to. That, my friends, is a huge piece of grace. Paul begins this letter to the Corinthian church, reminding them that they are on a most important journey in their lives. The conversation is about to get awkward, but not today. First, Paul wants to begin with some reminders of who they are as the body of Christ and what they've been given. This is not an individual endeavor. Christ's presence and grace is the defining characteristic of their life together. It is the defining characteristic of our life together. They are rooted in what God has done, not in their strength, but his. Let us pray.